There are professions more harmful than industrial design, but only a very few of them. And possibly only one profession is phonia, advertising design. In persuading people to buy things they don't need with money they don't have in order to impress others who don't care is probably the phoniest field in existence today. Never before in history have grown men sat down and seriously designed electric hairbrushes, rhinestone-covered shoehorns and mink carpeting for bathrooms, and then drawn up elaborate plans to make and sell these gadgets to millions of people. That's Designed for the Real World by Victor Papanak, and that was written in 1971. Hello, and thanks for joining me for another episode of the Hybrid Intelligence Podcast. My name is Lee Sankey. We just heard from Sophie Thomas, who's my guest for this and the next episode. Sophie is a pioneer in sustainability and in particular the circular economy, which she has been championing for over 25 years at a consultancy, Thomas Matthews. Now, few would argue that the need to change how we use the planet's resources and regenerate the environment is an emergency but it's something that people have been pushing for for a long time, as that 1971 citation from Victor Papanak hints at. I bumped into Sophie at a Smart City event recently over the summer and was delighted that she agreed to come on to the podcast to discuss one of the most important subjects facing us all today, whether as consumers or businesses. In this first episode from our two-part conversation, Sophie tells us about her unusual journey of being a graphic designer who also became a certified waste manager. I don't think there's too many of those. She also talks about her early influences that still inform her work today and what does it mean for a product, or more accurately, a system to be truly circular. The idea of this podcast, if you're a first-time listener, is simple. We bring together interesting people doing interesting things from the worlds of business, innovation, design, technology, and culture. I learned a lot in this enjoyable conversation with Sophie, and I hope you do too. Welcome to the podcast, Sophie. Thank you. Good so, to be here. Yeah, thanks for making some time for a chat. A good place to start is just you know, your background is graphic design. Your focus has always been on sustainability. How did you get into making that connection from being a graphic designer, but the next minute you're sort of rummaging around garbage tips and, and recycling <laughs> plants? Well, I think probably the best thing to do would be to swap it around and to say, how did I end up being a graphic designer? Because I suppose you can sort of go back my, you know, brought up in a family that were very political we lived in Oxford so we were kind of very involved in CND because it was really big when I was growing up you know there's lots of demonstration it was the big sort of political movement of the time and environmentalism was part of that big you know world peace nuclear disarmament uh, uh, animal you know biodiversity rights environmentalism was all wrapped up together so So activism activism was very much part of of Exactly. It was very much part of my blood and my, the way that I grew up. And it was my passion about stuff. And it sounds a bit naff, but actually when I went to college, and the reason why I went into design is that, you know, I was very creative and it was one of the outputs of this activism. And graphic design is a way of communicating that. So if you think about 
there are different well i mean there are different sides of graphic design and, and communication design there course, are the yeah. kind of uh you know the advertising focus and the selling the product side the seduction the seduction the, what used to be called commercial art so that's the kind of side of that the graphic design that i kind of fell in love with was much more from the luddites and the and the kind of uh Political, the political communicate exactly, of, and like of ideology and ide- ideology, ideas. and also yeah. giving people who don't have voices a voice in the argument, in the in the discussion, in the demonstrations. Right. So that's very much why I went into that. And actually, most people who know me well would know I'm not a pure graphic designer. You know, I'm not kind of obsessed with typography. I'm not. I mean, I'm. I know bad kerning when I see it. I know good design, and I know what the studio makes and uh, you know what we like to do and how we like to create and use color and use materials etc so I went to St Martin's it's a very um then it was a very different kind of graphic design school um and actually I trained in the illustration more so I spent most of my time in the print studio screen printing and then I went to the Royal College and again spending most of my time screen printing and I met Christine Matthews there she she's a pure craft absolutely brilliant typographer brilliant designer as well she came from west coast america so she was like couldn't believe why we didn't recycle stuff in the uk and we kind of so we we got together on that and one of the first projects we did we collected a week's worth of waste from the college canteen we went and talked to uh all the canteen staff we went through all the accounts with them and created this project called what comes around goes around it was one of the very first projects looking at recycling in the in the world college and this would have been what the sort of mid 90s late 90s uh yeah 90 early 97 yeah so there was no recycling in the college we were like this is ridiculous you know all these students drinking out polystyrene cups then so one material coffee cup um, so we collected a week's worth of waste. We washed it out. It was disgusting. We washed, but we washed it out and we hung it in a gallery. So we hung up all these cups, which is about sort of nearly six thousand cups. Wow! And just one, to bring uh, the scale to life. Yeah, and just said, "This is a week's worth of waste. This is what we get through. We don't do anything with it." Um, but because we'd done all the research behind it as well, we knew the cost of that, and we knew also we knew how many they were buying every week, and then we also could talk to their recycling or their waste management company and we got them to start recycling in the college and we ended up saving the college 50 pounds a week from just from sorting out all the cardboard uh, at that point we there was no kind of uh we couldn't do sort of plastic cup swapping but what we could do is we made a, a ceramic mug you know like like a normal mug and we sold it for two quid and everybody who bought one got three pence off their coffee which was the price of one of the polystyrene cups so we kind of like, so and then like we, an early keep cup, like a early version of that. In terms yes, of that. exactly. Yeah. Um, and then from that, we um, we collected all the money, and then we bought all the recycling bins. So we started glass, we started cardboard, we got uh, aluminium, steel, etc., the big and paper. And the companies, you know, the waste companies started to collect it all, save the college money, still running, you know. So very early on in your practice, as you're saying, it's it's in reverse. So very early in your creative work, you were thinking about yeah um, sustainability. So, so that definitely, you know, that very first project really set out the fact that 
you can't just do a poster on a wall. You have to have that granular data behind it to really understand what's going on. You have to have that observation of how people are throwing things away or how people are dealing with the you know these objects and then the two work so well together so you know without one or the other the power of the communication helped because we needed to have the kind of the behavior change to happen but we also had the data behind it to say this is what you need to do so action was was very concrete and it's those two things together yeah exactly those two things together actually really set out the way that we started to work at Thomas Matthews but the way that I've continued to work Fast forwarding, you founded your your own practice in, in yeah, 90, 97, 97, 97, 98. Uh, bit bit yeah. bit fluffy, but, we're, but yeah, in the, we, in have the a, we have a big birthday. Yeah, <laughs> yeah, yeah, well, yeah, of course. You're part of this uh, c- collective called the Useful Simple Trust yes. Collective. Do you want to tell us a, l- a little about that? Yeah, so Thomas Matthews is still going after 24 years and um, about... 12 years ago, Christy went back to the US um, and I was sort of looking around for a place to put TM because it's quite, you know, I never really wanted to run a business on my own. You know, it's it's quite stressful. Also, you know, once you get into that point of running a business, you tend not to be designing and you tend not to be creating. You're very much about management. And admittedly, you know, it's a, it's just not one of those things that uh, you know, that I'm particularly, if, if I was really, really good at that, I would go to sort of, you know, more to, to business school. But saying that, I, you know, it's not like I can't do it, but. Um, well, you've been doing it for over 20 years. So. 20 years. But I have very, very good team. You know, that's the that's the yeah. point. And that is the point of good management is you you build the team sure. to do to around you. So there was a point where I was looking around and I was talking to a number of different people. And I went to, um, I don't know if you remember the RDI, uh, so the RSA used to have a summer school called the RDI Summer School, and it was run by the World Designers for Industry. And they got they did a call out, and they got different designers who'd been working in all different aspects sectors of design for a few years who wanted to come and explore and do kind of uh, investigation for residency for like five days. So like speculative. Yeah, kind of it's kind of like projects. that exactly. Yeah. And yeah. Uh, Chris Wise was master of the faculty at that point, and he's a structural engineer. Um, who runs Expedition Engineering and we went over there and I went to start to talk to him and I met him and he was telling me about this kind of idea he was setting up which was a very new idea called an employee benefit trust it's very similar to the John Lewis model okay where you have everybody is is a beneficiary you know you you own the bent you own the business yourself everybody owns it you know I can't give myself a massive payoff uh, or payout, but actually, it's it's very de- democratized in terms of a business, and so I talked to him about bringing TM into that business. So now the it's twelve years on. We're called the Useful Simple Trust. We're Employee Benefit Trust. So I reversed the business into that. I don't own TM anymore. We all own it. If you see what I mean. Amazing, yeah. There's about eighty of us. There's four different businesses. So we have the engineering, so structural engineering. Also, master planning, sustainability consultancy, architecture, communication design. It's actually more than that. Isn't it? Um, and we also have education as well. So we we work all together. We cross over. We have our different clients as well, very separate. It's very it's good much to be in that collective, collective absolutely. environment. 
And it's yeah. got the same, we have a trailblazing ethos. So it's very much about like doing good for humanity, environmentally, people, planet profit, net zero, circular economy. So we kind of set the vision like that. We're a social enterprise and about a year and a half ago became a B Corp as well. So amazing. That was that, how was that becoming a B, B Corp? It can be very, it, very difficult. It's not easy, is it? It's not an easy process. It's it's very uh, soul searching and lots and lots of data collecting. But because we were um, an EPT, like an employee benefit trust already, we actually had we were very far ahead in terms of okay. where we needed to get to. So it actually made it a hell of a lot easier. But it was a real significant achievement. And we're very proud of the fact that we're a B Corp. You were also, I, I was amazed to read this, you're a chartered waste manager. Yes, I am. I was just I was just looking at my certificate this morning. 2014, I became a chartered waste manager. So it's interesting, isn't it, that I am not a chartered designer, but I'm a chartered waste. So um, this came about because in 2012, I, well, a few years. So actually what we haven't talked about is the kind of reason why I'm still spend half my days knee deep in rubbish. Yes, and Sophie, why is that? <laughs> I, don't, I just try to work it out. I don't really know. But I suppose I've always been very interested in, I think I'm just quite one of those quite observant people who walks around a bit of a magpie walking around and I'll see something glittering on the floor or, you know, like different colours somewhere. Yeah. Mm -hmm. When I was younger, we used to have a Victorian dump down the road from us. You know, those kind of places where the Victorians used to just, well, literally it was sort of landfill, Victorian landfill, and they get uncovered in certain time, you know, like erosion, etc. And I used to go down there, my mum and dad, and just sort of dig around and we'd find this kind of old pots and you know glass okay. things and yeah, I found yeah. um, this bone stick and I realized it was a toothbrush it was a Victorian toothbrush and it lost all its kind of um, bristles yeah. bristles but it mm. still had the green stripes on the back and it was bone and I was like this is crazy you know actually what was so what fascinated me about it was that actually somebody else had held that mm. and somebody else had used it it was a ubiquitous object and yet if you think about the design of that object it hasn't actually changed at all it's still a stick with bristles on it effectively so it makes it very recognizable as an object and now if you look at them toothbrushes are like we use them for about three months if we don't you know if we have a, like a just the normal one we throw it away but it's now instead of being just bone and bristle it's now four different types of plastic potentially glue or metal pins you've got the bristles all these different things there's no place for them to be recycled they're so small that they they just become objects that we just throw away and don't think about anymore those kinds of objects are really a good example of how much stuff we just don't see around us that actually just gets into the waste stream very quickly with no apparent uh, thought about where it's going to end up how we're going to get that material back and this understanding of the value of the materials around us so I think I've always had those things and I've just kind of ramped it up to say, I really want to go and look at where all this all stuff the ends up. All the way to the end. Yeah. Right. Yeah. Yeah, exactly. So it's, it's a kind of, it's a sort of investigative process of the design inquiry design mind that kind of leads you to a place where you think, oh, this is quite interesting what's going on here. And I've just kind of taken, I think I've taken it to 
a bigger level than most people. And well, certified, certified, <laughs> level. certified well, level. I, yeah. When I read this the, the, this quote, though, one thing that really jumped out at me it, it, it said in 2014, Sophie became one of the first designers to become a chartered waste manager. But the that that instantly raises a question: there are other <laughs> designers. Well, I don't are, know are if there, there are others. Yeah, uh, I'm not I, sure there is have, either. <laughs> the reason I says that I think is because. We just don't know. And actually more because at the point, but there weren't that many people doing this kind of inquiry stuff around circular economy. I mean, this is, yeah. this, I got this because of the work I did at the Great Recovery. So it was the RSA project. And, and that really was stemmed from, there still is a program that's done by government where you can go to visit different countries to see best practice. And it was run by the UKTI, so trading industry. Mm-hmm. And, they ran a program uh, with one of the material and design exchange groups to look at designing out landfill. We went to the Netherlands as a group. Uh, we went around to all these different companies to see how, you know, a country which had banned landfill in 1996, how they were then dealing with their waste streams, how they were innovating around recovering materials. You know, in, they had a lot of incineration there happening as well, or energy from waste um, because they couldn't put it in physically, put it into the land because they didn't have the land space to do it. Right. Yeah. Is that still the case today? That's that still the case. Yeah. Wow. I didn't know that. So no yeah. landfill in the Netherlands. No, they right. don't have it. So um, we went to these amazing places, and one of the places we went to was a fridge recovery facility, and it was a state-of-the-art facility. So you had on one end, you had this amazing machinery, which you literally could put a fridge in one end, and out the other end came all the different materials split out, even the gases everything copper plastic etc the other half where this these containers turned up with the and they opened the door and all these fridges fell out okay they were like it was basically a, a a group of people who had to sort of drain all the fridges take the compressor out the back because that's the most valuable piece of the fridge before it could get crushed as well because you don't want to crush that you have to take all the, the liquids out and I was just watching this guy and he had uh, every fridge that came up was, it didn't matter even if it was the same make, every back was different. So he had to assess how many screws he needed, what kind of different screwdrivers, sorry, what kind of tools he needed just to take the back out. And he was tight, he was timed, he had a target to reach. And it was just kind of really stressful. I thought as designers, we spent all of our time thinking about the user experience at the back. We never think about how we help people recover the material we just think about they buy it off the shelf and then our job is done and then we move on so I was thinking what we need to do is we need to line up all the fridge designers behind this guy and say look how hard you're making his life and look how easy you could do you know why is that screw there why is that piece of you know why is he finding it hard to get to that bit of the the uh, machinery it's often because, oh, it just used to be like that and we've just iterated it a little bit, but we don't, you know, it's just about fitting it together. It's no, it's no thought process. And so from that, I went away and I said, this is ridiculous. I'm going to organize, uh, I'm going to design a program, a project where we can get all the designers who make different things to do this process, to take something apart, look at how we do it and then redesign it for different systems, redesign it for a circularity, redesign it for reuse, for recovery, for easy remanufacture. And then I went to um, 
Innovate UK and I said this is what we should do and they said great let's do it so they support they funded it with the RSA and then we managed to get loads of designers thousands of designers thousands of uh, manufacturers in we got chemists we got the point was actually you had to have all these different people so we kind of one of the first things we did was map out if I was designing a fridge for second third use you know like recycling recovering reuse and materials who would I need to have in my design team in order to inform me how to do that? Um, it's not just going to be me and the kind of, you know, and the mechanical engineer or, yes. you know, or the guy, you know, just working on the door yeah. structure or something. It's actually going to be a material expert, uh, a waste manager is going to be somebody who understands uh, recovery of that material the logistics, et cetera, et cetera. So we planned all of this big weir, we call it the circular network. And then so we pulled all those people into this discussion over four years and uh, we did, you know, we took thousands of designers to waste sites like the one I just went to in the fridge uh, recovery. We got them to tear things apart. We gave them loads of tools. We said, how difficult was that? How easy was it? And then we taught them about circularity, the four design models of circular uh, economy and then we got them to think about how you would redesign those products back again and then sent them back into their industry and into said go and do it <laughs> yeah yeah amazing and that's why yeah. I got chartered <laughs> so <laughs> I, I, all of that work so. definitely want to talk a bit more about implementing circular and and where the level of thinking is around uh, designers how top of mind it is and also in, in companies this is a good uh, segue into what is circular because I hear some companies describing themselves as being part of the circular economy just because they're selling secondhand goods mm -hmm. what is circular does it have to include uh, an object which can be easily taken apart or reused mul multiple times I mean what what is circularity if you look at the definition of circular economy, it's about keeping value of materials and products in the societal system for as long as possible. So that means multiple use. That means all of the things you talked about. So the the answer is yes, 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 and yes to you, because um, it really depends on the product or the thing that you're trying to design. So a lot of the time, when we were talking about value, we were talking about the design brief as well. Often briefs now, well, you know, the briefs that I get and the briefs that a lot of designers get say, you know, say we were designing a toothbrush, it has to be easy to hold, it has to be bright colours and attractive for, for, you know, for people to see. It has to get to the parts of the teeth that you can't reach, you know, it has to be able to get all the plaque out. It has to functional. be a certain functional, it has to be at a certain price point all of those things it never says it has to be well it never did say it has to be made in a way that you can recover all the materials it can fit into a recycling system and or you know a system that can actually de decompose and or recover the materials quickly um and it has to be easy for the can the customer or the you know the citizen to be able to do that very fast and, and that we would all have such a prof profound change yeah. wouldn't it if all briefs had that sort of extra line that you're talking about. Yes. What it what is the third or fourth use of this product or yeah. it, in order for it to be a good design, it has to meet 
the kinds of criteria you you were just articulating yeah exactly and i think then because then what you see is you're not thinking about the product because if you go say if you if I, if it's so different from saying uh this product has to be able to be recycled because that's only one particularly thinking about the second life so you're you can just basically say oh it's made out of plastic that can go into this bin or the or you tick. know a tick yeah so you can have products which have four different types of plastic each of them are recyclable but when you put them together they're not recyclable so that that's when you people say oh it's a recyclable product but in fact actually it isn't it isn't at that point yeah so i think um what happens is that when you talk about third or fourth life you basically refocus away from the product and you look at the material so you go the material is the constant the product is the blip up and then it, it needs to go back into its materials that it become it's kind and of then become so, and then become something else yeah so it's, the, it's so basically I, the laws of physics isn't it but yes. <laughs> so when you consider things like secondhand clothing for example yes it is part of a circular economy um it's a rebrand of something that we used to call something else secondhand secondhand i know yeah there <laughs> <I> mean, you go <laughs> but um the issue is that you can't stop there. So, you know, if, if I saw right. someone say, oh, we're, you know, this is a vintage item or whatever, but we're part yeah. of the circular economy, I'd say, okay, what's your take back? You know, where, what next? What do I do with it next? Because it can't just stop at one point. You can't just say, oh, it's it's had one use. That's all right. Your second use. But actually it has to be, okay, what next? Can you give tell me where to take it next? Does it go to a recycling bank? Are you going to take it back and resell it? You know, you lending it to me. So this understanding of like, it can't just stop. And I think that's the part of the problem I have with a lot of people who say we are part of the circular economy. You're going, well, you're just taking that as a branding for your for what thing. you haven't changed your, your your thinking around how you're selling yes. something. Yeah. And the sort of historical context of, of how we ended up here, Sophie, I mean, plastic is been a lot of what's driving the debate and plastic in a way when we've talked before is is part of this industrial boom wasn't it in terms yeah. of how that has through mass production but it's been a it's enabled you know economic growth in so many ways but we're now at a, at a, at a stage where it's almost like one of the biggest challenges I see around climate change it'd be great to talk about how circular fits into that is because in the west our societies rely on people to consume things and I think that's why circularity is interesting because if you do it right we can still have consumption the question is you know the degree to which we can still make things because that takes energy but the historical context and and how oil and and all these vested interests is important to think about as well isn't it in terms of understanding yeah. how we got here yeah I mean, so I'm, I've spent quite a lot of time looking at plastics as a material flow. And I mean, it's, a, it's incredibly ubiquitous it's in everything. Um, it's also incredibly useful. It's made itself very, um, you know, we can't really live without it. I think that's the other thing about the material. And as you say, it was sold on a, a very, a very interesting ticket basically out of depression and out of wartime rationing so if you look at the kind of where plastic came from it was it was really pushed I mean it was around 
just about around. I mean, that's you were talking earlier about the book that my mum gave me. Uh, this 1942 edition of the citizens advice notes and they're basically the notes that were given to all the wardens in the in England to on how to uh, deal with blackouts rationing you know access to services etc and there's a whole section on salvage in there and they talk about the fact that uh, it's it was uh, against the law to uh, throw away bits of paper, throw away cotton rags, throw away pieces of string that were longer than like six inches because they were all used and recovered and used in the in the war effort. And you weren't allowed to like wrap food in pla- paper. You weren't allowed to, you weren't allowed to create gratuitous advertising for products and things like that. So it was all very much focused on the material. Going back to the material is really, really important. Right. It really has real value. But um, born out of real constraints and they yeah. need to be frugal and so on. Yeah, yeah, exactly. So there's no mention of plastic in there. There is a mention of rubber. There's a whole piece on rubber. There's a mention of gutter percha, which was one of the very first plastic that was that was about at that point. But following on from that, another book I have from the 50s early 50s it's called it's just called plastics and it's all about the rise of plastics and there's a whole section on the back called the plastic man and it's effectively a sort of diatribe of this of what this guy this man born in plastic lives through plastic and dies in plastic and it's all like he's born in a plastic put in a plastic cot he's wrapped in polyester clothing he sits and eats his lunch at a plastic table, drives in a plastic car, and then he gets buried in a plastic coffin. And it just, it's pretty horrendous. But the point of the, the point of it is that actually it's, it's, you read it, you go, yeah, that's it. That's actually what happens now. Also, this material is pushed as this kind of miracle material. So this is a material that's cheap, brightly colored, because obviously there's, you know, there's something about the kind of celebratory freedom that we needed to have this liberation out of very dark times um you can throw it away it was just it was sold on the disposability ticket it's so cheap and easy to use that you don't need to worry about it you don't need to keep every bit of string piece of paper everything like that just throw it away it doesn't mean anything you know it's this carefree kind of future um free exactly and so you know that kind of disposability and that kind of uh brand effectively the kind of what how we sold this product has stuck with it for so long and we so therefore the way that we deal with this product it has a kind of identity crisis you know we still think of it as a very throwaway product a material and we are destined to like you know we just make so much of it you know there's kind of like hundreds of millions of tons of it is made every year it's looking to grow because of the u.s fracking industry has basically invested i think you know another sort of 300 billion dollars or something in new plastic uh manufacturing facilities in the u.s in the next few years so wow. it's not something that's going to go away uh, we've talked about the fact that you know the recycling of plastic is very limited so I think is about globally about only eight percent actually gets properly recycled. The rest yeah, of it is so so, con- low. so low, so contaminated, and it's so low value that actually it's so impossible. It, so as consumers, when we're putting things in that recycling bin, we think, oh, you know, that's going to get recycled. But actually, the reality is, 
much lower than that, isn't it? It's much lower than that. Yeah, and yeah. so because of the way things are designed and how recoverable these these materials are. Yeah, and but and also because there aren't any markets for it, <laughs> because the, yeah. we've got such a big flow of virgin New, plastic yeah, coming virgin, on the market. Right. So yeah, exactly. actually, you know, it's very difficult. And this is why it's so important to have things like the Blue Planet effect. Actually, customers and citizens revolting against it and saying, actually, I don't want that. I don't want to have that plastic. I want you to have recycled plastic or I don't want plastic, you know. And that is kind of interesting because it sort of puts – the company's in a position where they're like, oh, I can't, like, I can't actually do that. It's desirability in a way, isn't it? If it's pushed by consumers, consumers hold a lot of power, a lot more power than they realise, but they have to act on, on mass yeah. uh, to, 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 to deliver change. But I Just, wonder yeah. if what you're talking about is, is redefining what makes a product desirable. Yeah. So voices of citizens and kind of consumer and behaviour change and consumer power are probably one of the biggest pieces of sort of influence that we have, you know, citizens of the earth. And we have to go against these big lobby, fossil fuel, et cetera, et cetera, come, you know, big lobby groups, yeah. which and are very powerful. Plastic comes from oil, doesn't it? So yeah. the oil lobby is very, very, it's very, very powerful. powerful. So, yeah. yeah. But, you know, actually, that's what's been very surprising, I think, and given a lot of fuel to, as bad word, but uh, fuel to um, the environmental groups, because actually they've seen the power of, again, going back to, you know, why am I a designer, the power of communication, visual imagery of animals being tied up in plastic in the ocean or, you know, eating plastic bags. It's been is emotionally very very uh influential to us and therefore we you know that to me it. is like we can absolutely can leverage it yeah yeah and we're, we're heading to a point where i think you mentioned to me before a statistic where we're on a path to where there's more plastic in the oceans than yeah than fish yeah by 2050 they estimate if we carry on as business as usual there'll be more plastic by weight than fin fish in the ocean yeah which is shocking okay. isn't it so in in terms of climate change and the various tools that we have to, and we should call it a climate emergency, really, I guess, mm. uh, rather than change uh, and a change we probably don't want to adapt to. It'd be better not having it or trying to reverse it. We all obviously have a range of things that we can do, decarbonize, consume less, so on and so forth, a range of technologies uh, a range of policy changes and things which need to help um initiate and dri drive that change how do you see circularity fitting into that picture as i mentioned earlier for me it's one of the most important aspects uh, and, and and tools and, and approaches just because it's one of those things which seems quite pragmatic in the sense that we need consumption in the West for our society to work. So in the overall picture, how do you see circularity fitting in? When climate emergency first started to be talked about, there was a lot of kind of confusion about the different term terminology. And I, the way that I see it is that circular economy is actually, it's a very practical tool. Because I'm a designer, I think in the terms of practicality. I mean, actually, if you talk about the circular economy, it's a whole economic system. It's like capitalism, but it's uh, circular. The clue, the clues in the, uh, clue, the, clues in the, the, the clues name. The clues in the name, yeah. <laughs> uh, 
um, which is a whole other discussion, which is worth having. There was a report done by the Ellen MacArthur Foundation called Completing the Picture, which talked about the fact that if we do want to get to reduction, well, like keeping our temperature down to 1.5 by the increase by 1.5 degrees, you can only do roughly half of that in energy, uh, energy saving and renewables, carbon capture. The other half is actually in the resources that we consume. So if we are not thinking about recovering that resources, using those resources, and I'm talking about, you know, the minerals, the kind of the rare earths, the, the metals, the plastics, all of the materials that go in, you know, our building blocks for our products. If we're not considering low carbon alternatives, um, recovering those, making sure that they get used for as long as possible, that they've recovered, that they're recycled, then we're actually never going to get to that 1.5 limit. You know, we're, we're going to exceed it. So, so energy usage is only part of the equation. It's part of the equation, yeah. So yeah, actually yeah. the other part is, you know, concrete. It's, it's just such a massive issue, yeah. things like that in construction. So it's one of the tools to get to that point where, and it's a really, really important tool for us to make sure that we get, we can at least try to get to that to stick to 1.5. Thank you to my guest, Sophie Thomas, and thanks to you for listening. Sophie and I will be continuing our conversation in the next episode where we'll be diving deeper into the challenges of implementing a circular economy. And Sophie tells us about her brand new venture fund and incubator. I hope you can join us. If you've enjoyed this conversation, you can subscribe wherever you listen to your podcast to hear about new episodes. If you have any comments or want to get in touch, feel free to email me at contact at My name is Lee Sankey, and until next time, keep well and thanks for listening.